Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's episode, well, we're heading to China. Some 5,000 years ago, we're talking about one of the earliest known cultures, civilizations from ancient China, sometimes labeled as one of the cradles of Chinese civilization. It's a culture located in the Yangtze Delta, and it's called Liangzhu. Now, the archaeology recovered from Liangzhu is astonishing. This Stone Age centre, which seems to have been a state society, the layout of the city itself with rivers, almost like a very prehistoric Venice in one sort of way. Hear me out on that later in the episode. But also, surrounding Liangzhu, you have some of the earliest known water systems, hydraulic systems ever created, these prehistoric dams. It is Remarkable, And that's not even covering the artefacts, the jade artefacts, these precious artefacts that have also been uncovered there. That's all to be explained in today's episode with archaeologist Dr. Yi Jae Zhuang from University College London. I headed over to Yi Jae's office earlier in the summer and it was a pleasure to do this episode with Yi Jae in person. I really do hope you enjoy. It's about time that the ancients returned to China and its archaeology. And without further ado... Here's EJ. EJ, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Nice to meet you. It's lovely to meet you too. And we're doing it in your office at UCL. And to talk about this, Langzhu, is that how we say it? Liangzhu, yes. Langzhu. And this is potentially the earliest state society in East Asia. I think arguably, if we cannot explain what the criteria we use to define what a state-level society was, then we can call it the probably the earliest state-level society in East Asia. And how do we therefore define a state society? So let's don't go in debate in terms of what shall we call a state or a culture, a civilization, or how do we define an archaeological culture, a state-level polity or society. And I think instead of going into those endless debate, I'll briefly summarize what's the state of art of this kind of debate in Chinese archaeology and probably in the broader context. A few decades ago, archaeologists in China, they were still using this very, I would say, Eurocentric kind of idea in terms of how should we define a civilization. 
and some of the most salient characteristics people often used to define or to call in archaeological cultures include, for instance, it has to have writing or written records, right. it has to have metals, and it was getting increasingly absurd in Asian or Chinese archaeological context because we do have great archaeological cultures like Liangzhu we are talking about today, which has fantastic monuments, extraordinary highly developed agriculture, and yet it was without writing records. So what do we call this? Can we just say they are no civilization because they don't have written records? So I think archaeologists was getting increasingly frustrated, and now a lot of archaeologists in China, or I would say maybe non-Anglo-Saxon context, they continue to push the boundary of civilization. And in Chinese archaeological context, a lot of prehistorical archaeologists now will call those sort of Lenianithic or late prehistorical cultures civilization. And this is still in quite a big contrast to what the Western archaeologists are still thinking of Chinese history. Because a lot of Western archaeologists, they still think that we should consider the beginning of civilization in China from the Shang Dynasty which has the earliest written records. So you can see very interesting debate or sort of conflicting thoughts in China and outside China. You mentioned late Neolithic then. So when are we talking in Chinese history with the late Neolithic? So different archaeologists have their own chronological uh, framework. Uh, broadly speaking, we are talking about probably the last five, six millennium, 6,000 to 5,000 years before present, and to the beginning of Bronze Age or sort of to the beginning of written records. So we are talking about probably one or two thousand years archaeological records across China. This is also a great time of dramatic social, economic and environmental transformations. You have highly developed agriculture, you have a large variety of introduced cultivars from Eurasian continents also arriving in China. You also have Chinese things going west. So it's a great time of not only great socio-economic transformation, but also highly intensified regional interactions, which together define, you know, what Lenianithic cultures was like in China and probably beyond. Yeah, absolutely. Those increased connections, isn't yes, it, with people yes. much further? And I'm guessing down river valleys, that's quite an important yes. way that those connections yes. occur. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, you also mentioned that the Shang Dynasty, but of course, we're talking about Langzhu. So whereabouts in China are we talking about with Langzhu? So Langzhu is situated in nowadays Hangzhou city, which is by the sort of Hangzhou Bay of the lower Yangtze River, or broadly speaking, to the south of Shanghai, you know, which is a well-known city. And Liangzhu culture sort of rose or emerged at a very interesting window period in terms of broader environmental change, because the lower Yangtze River or Yangtze Delta is exceptionally low-lying. At the moment, it's only two, three meters above the sea level. Wow. Incredible and ex- extremely flat. And we have very good geological or environmental records of how the environment had evolved in the past 10,000 years or so. And we can see a very dramatic rising curve of the sea level, which inundated a majority of the Yangtze Delta. But at the same time, it also brought abundant sediments. So therefore, you can see the formation of the Delta gradually taking shape. And by 
around maybe 6,000 to 5,000 years before present, you started to have scattered lines emerge. And then these kind of line formation continue to develop, which form a very important physical environment for the rise of the Liangzhu civilization around sort of 5,000 years before present. Now, you mentioned, of course, that there's no writing has been found from Langzhu, but it has this extraordinary archaeology, and this is monumental archaeology too. So I'd like to kind of explore these various parts of it and almost actually start outside the city itself, but related to the civilization. Mm-hmm. Because I want to talk about these dams, because they look absolutely extraordinary. And I've got in my notes, the earliest hydraulic enterprise in China. So yes, I did write a paper in 2017, which we do call it the earliest hydraulic enterprise in China, and this was indeed groundbreaking in multiple levels. Firstly, the scale of these hydraulic systems was enormous in terms of the size. The hydraulic system consisting of high dams, low dams, and some very complicated structure levees, as I can show you in the map here. So we have high dams here, which were primarily built uh, in the mountainous area, which is to conjoin different sections of the natural hills so that you form a natural reservoir. And then you have low dams in here, which is in the low-lying flatlands. And you also have a very long sort of double dike levees. And the whole entire system was situated to the north or northwest of the Liangzhu city, which we'll come back to later. And the entire volume of the hydraulic enterprise or project, our rough estimate shows that probably the Liangzhu people were moving at least or almost 3 million cubic meters of earth you know, from the nearby environment to be a dams like these, some of which are still standing nowadays on the surface, quite a few meters above the above the sort of surrounding ground. So these are um, massive these are massive construction yes. projects that they are undertaking. Yes, yes. And then they were also applying very clever sort of engineering uh, technique. So they were using some quality sort of prehistorical sandbags. Sandbags. So okay, basically yeah. they were digging the clay sediments from the nearby wetlands, wrap it up with the grass, and therefore you can pile it up, the dam, from different alignments or different arrangements. Therefore, you have a actually good engineering stability to ensure the dam can stand there for a long time and function well. And then in some dam sections, at the bottom of the dams, there were also stone beddings which also, once again, enhance the permeability of water being drained properly so that they don't collapse the dams. So I think they had a very good idea what they were doing, and they have very clever sort of architectural technologies to build the dams. They really are remarkable, and to see how much of them has been preserved even down to the present day, and I love that idea of the Neolithic sandbag, as you mm. say, with the grass and yes. everything. It really yeah. shows how remarkable builders these people were. And do we know what the main purpose, the function of building these dams in the mountains to the north of Langju, but also on the lower, lower mm. terrain as well? Do we know what their main mm. function was? That's a very good question. And it is also a very, very difficult one. And obviously, I think the dams will have been multi-functional. And I think some of the functions will be including protecting the city from being flooded by mountainous terrains, particularly in the summer. Because 
the Liangzhu area is very extremely flat, low-lying floodplain kind of thing. Very low-lying sort of floodplains,、mm. and even probably two decades decades ago, people live not more than residents living in here. They were still experiencing annual floods. So obviously, this would have been a massive problems for the residents in Liangzhu five thousand years ago. So I think one of the most important functions of the hydraulic systems would have been preventing preventing the systems from being flooded. And very interesting, and I would say astonishing, astonishingly, is radiocarbon dates shows that these hydraulic systems probably predate the Liangzhu city. So in a way that they were probably. Deliberately engineering the entire landscape that we are going to build this time first, so that we can very smoothly, you know, building our city without being flooded. So I think flood pre- prevention will be probably the most important function. And then the second function, I would say, probably water transportation, because this mountainous area can provide a lot of resources that. Were needed to build and probably operate the Liangzhu city, and we can definitely see that they were collecting a lot of stones, a lot of timbers from the mountainous area for the construction of the hydraulic systems itself, but also the city. And once these reservoirs or dams were flooded, we can see that the level will have been increased many meters high, therefore making the whole area becoming sort of navigable. Sort of、uh, easy to navigate, so you can use you know boats and bamboo raft, which have also been found in the Liangzhu civilization to transport to transport the stones and timbers you know from the mountainous area to the city and nearby area. So that would be the second function, and the third one obviously would be agriculture purposes, controlling or managing water, especially in this sort of monsoon influence area, which. Can be dry in the winter, but very wet in the summer. And very interestingly, this area we have done sort of systematic survey, and we haven't found abundant agriculture f- or fields in this area. So, was that a deliberate sort of buffering zone? You know,、um, the last point probably we do need to do a bit more research in terms of fully understand how exactly these hydraulic systems were used for agriculture purposes. But it is still absolutely extraordinary, isn't、mm. it? And I love that transportation point that you mentioned there. So these almost become waterways between、yes. the highlands yes, and the city itself. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, let's therefore focus on the city, this ancient city of Langju.、Mm. What do we know? Well, first of all, the water entering the city through these waterways. Were there any fortifications of Langju? Yes, so Liangzhu it is a wall city which has the enclo- sort of earthen enclosures, and in fact,、uh, it's consisting of multiple rings of earthen enclosures, as you can roughly see、oh, from、yes. the map here. So we have at least probably two circles, maybe three circles. Two three、um, circles. But the inner one is best preserved, and you can see that the walls are some of them are still a few meters higher than the surrounding ground, and. These walls were built by pretty much the same structure or same te- technology I mentioned earlier on, which is the prehistoric sandbags. You know, basically that was a very clever sort of invention they have you know come up with in terms of easily transport the、uh, the clay or the sediments from the surrounding environment and then pile it up. You know, with 
some complicated structures. And we actually also done some sort of modern engineering sort of testing. And of course, these, these structures are much more stable than you simply just pile it up without you know, any structure. So they were building these sort of earthen walls to enclose the entire city. And probably it's also function as a sort of some kind of boundary or to demarcate the boundary between the enclosed area and those sort of outside enclosed area. And how big is this wall circuit? Do we know roughly how big it is? Um, so the entire enclosed area and the associated facilities, in total, they probably measure around 300 hectares in size. So it is pretty big. And in that sense, it, in that sense it's one of the largest urban settlements or urban centers in prehistoric East Asia. Of course, you have slightly bigger, but later period, sort of enclosed war, or war towns uh, in China as well, but they were found in a sort of later period. And this is, of course, to say this is not the Yellow River, this is the Yangtze River, yes. isn't it? So that's yes. also very interesting compared to what was initially Exactly, conceived. and I think that's a very good point, that these historical narratives always focus on the Yellow River, that that's the crater of you know, Chinese civilization. But recent and increasing archaeological campaigns outside the Yellow River valleys has you know, added or provide a lot of supplementary information in terms of understanding how Chinese civilization formed. And obviously, Liangzhu is quite against this conventional idea that, you know, you have an early city, early city in the Yellow River Valley. No, in this case, we found a very early city in the, in the Yangtze Delta region. In the Yangtze Delta region, indeed. Well, one more thing on the walls before we go into the interior of the town. Now, when someone mentions walls, you've got to also think of entrances. So what sorts of, I guess, gates or entrances did Langzhu have? Langzhu, I think it has eight gates. Some of them are so-called water gates. And we just talk about the hydraulic system. And in fact, the hydraulic system was connected to the city via quite a few, quite a large number of artificial or natural canals, which the Langzhu people dug. And I think there are so far at least 51 canals, which sort of crisscrossing inside and outside the Liangzhu city and potentially connected to the hydraulic system in the highlands and the natural rivers in the lowlands. So the Liangzhu city would have been all connected to these natural water systems. And therefore, they were also using water gates to come in and out of the city, you know, for transportation, navigation, etc. So water gates as well as, I guess, terrestrial or, or yes. overland gates yes. into the... So yes. if we've got to imagine that, I mean, walking into the city of Langzhou, do we therefore not just see land? Would there have been canals as well inside the city? Yes, so that's a very good point uh, indeed. Um, so Liangzhou, we can pretty much call it a water city. Um, <laughs> some local archaeologists, they also consider it a prototype of so-called urban water town which is still or was very prevalent in this part of China half a century ago. You know, if you visit some of those very well-preserved water town outside uh, Shanghai, they're pretty amazing. So some local archaeologists consider Liangzhu the prototype of that kind of, you know, way of living and engineering the landscape. On American History Hit, we ride the wild Oregon Trail. 
delve deep beneath Central Park and fight the forgotten war of 1812. Join me, Don Wildman, and my expert guests as we uncover the stories that have shaped America in all its endless complexity. We'll follow John Wilkes Booth as he shoots President Lincoln and goes on the run. And we'll walk under the stars with Harriet Tubman as she finds her way to freedom. Follow America's story from the first Native people to footprints on the moon. On American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, with new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. And so we've got the canals, the waterways. That's extraordinary as well. Saying, you know, this is some 4,000 years old, is it? Or around? Um, 5,000 years. 5,000 yes. years old. Yes. You've got these waterways in the town mm-hmm. itself. So around these waterways, what has the archaeology revealed about the, the layout of Langju? So the Langju city, it's, as you can see, sort of, it's a sort of roundy shape or roughly a square shape kind of enclosed area with two sort of multiple outer kind of circuses. And then right in the, me- in the middle of the, of the city is the so-called Mo Jiaoshan uh, Palatial Platforms, which itself is massive in size. It's measuring around 30 hectares in size. And, and the Mo Jiaoshan is really an extraordinary uh, structure. As you can see that yes. the Mo Jiaoshan is entirely elevated by constructing sort of these earthen layers. Uh, this is the cross section of the Mo Jiaoshan uh, Palatial Platform. Some of them is up to uh, 50 meters high. So it's an extraordinary engineering project. And then on top of the Mo Jiaoshan, you can see that it's, it has quite a few 
these small sort of policies and small sort of man-made sort of platforms or modes. Uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them have already gone. They are they're going to preserve, but the foundation itself is really massive. And these are some of the so-called well-preserved sandbags we have found. Yeah. Um, you can see that you can almost see. You know, the plant is still there. I mean, it's fantastic. And then scattered between these palatial platforms are some of the elite cemeteries that have been found inside the city, as well as other functional areas such as. An area immediately to the south of the Mojiaoshan Palatial Platform, which contain abundant hundreds of tons of rice remains, have been found in there. So could that potentially be in a granary or something yes, like that? Yes, exactly. Yes. So some have called it a state granary. And the ex extra extraordinary thing about this is that in several thousand square meters, very large areas, you see a meter deep kind of cup pure carbonized rice there. So the estimates of these uh, rice remains would be tons, you know, hundreds of tons uh, of rice being preserved there. For what reason why these were not consumed, but instead have, were being burned, you know, we don't quite know. You don't quite, so there's not, um, go on, yeah, sorry, go on, go on, yeah. No, we don't quite know what was the reason why they were, because this is a huge amount of rice and they were not eating it or consuming it. it they were, you know, this rice were, burned, you know. So was it because of a fire or because of some other, you know, purposes? We don't quite know yet. Have you found any other evidence for fire in, in the city itself that might suggest it was burned down or was that, do we I not mean, know that yet? I mean, obviously, to get preserved, it has to be burned, carbonized. Mm. So obviously there was a massive fire, but whether this was a deliberate fire or fire out of it, some sort of ice stand, we don't quite know yet. Mm. Yeah. The Mojishan, do we think, is it, is it at the center and you say palatial, do we therefore think that this potentially was the seat of power for the ruler or whoever was at the top of this state society? Probably the elite class, they were living and performing all kinds of ritual sort of activities in the Mojiaoshan. But as I say, unfortunately, a lot of these architects have already gone, so we don't quite know, you know, what were the structure, you know, mm. What, what, what were the functions of these palatial uh, architects. And the Anzhu itself is in terms of the sort of social hierarchy or social structure, it's also very unique. One of the things, which we'll probably come back to uh, in a minute, yeah, uh, is the jade. The beautiful um, jade, yeah. The Liangzhu elites, they were obsessed you know, with jade production. And what's also extraordinary is that they have this very almost homogeneous design of the motifs, or some call it insignia. So it's like a sort of symbol of the entire state-like society. Okay, yep. Which symbol, was yeah. common, sort of commonly acknowledged, not only in Liangzhu, but across the entire Yangtze Delta area. And one has to know that this very complicated design with extremely fluid lines, it's only one centimeters. So you can almost imagine that the elite probably have spent huge amount of time in doing this, in carving the, the jade. And obviously they, this was driven by religious or religious-like sort of belief. They probably believed that this was a very important thing in the society and this has some certain power that can 
you know, unify or, you know, coordinate a society and being acknowledged by neighboring communities as well. So collectively, it probably defined the religious-like ideology or belief in Liangzhu. And the Mojiaoshan elites, who, whoever were living there, they were probably involved in the production of these kind of jade artifacts as well. And in fact, at the eastern so slope of the Mojiaoshan palatial platforms, we can find that there were probably a lot of workshops that's been organized or sort of located in there. And some of the workshops probably were used to produce some of the J artifacts. Uh-huh. I just show you. And, but of course, this is a very complicated issue. Um, they probably have already developed some sort of specialized production. You know, certain workshops responsible for production of certain kind of jade. It's so interesting from archaeology how you can see all across the world, from let's say the Neolithic period or just the prehistoric period, mm. the construction of important buildings at the centre, which have more than one purpose. You know, it could be a powerful elite centre, ritual, but also workshops and all this stuff. Like I'm thinking like the Knossos, the Minoans, and even a Broch, mm. even in Scotland. It is extraordinary to see that again here in China. Those jade artifacts, you did say we were going to go back to them, and we are going to go back to them. Because, I mean, that particular design you showed just now, just to describe it, it as you say, it's quite small, those designs, but meticulously carved. And it resembles, it's, it's a face, isn't it? With like eyes and a nose and maybe a mouth. It's, it's an extraordinary design. So, yes, it's hard not to be fascinated by these kind of incredibly, as you said, meticulously designed and carved jade artifacts as well as, you know, its symbols. And there are a lot of interpretations in terms of what is symbolized. And I think one of the common sort of narratives about the meaning of these insignia or sort of symbols is that it probably represents a sort of prototype of sort of ancestral uh, worship, which commemorating some kind of heroic events of the of the tribe of the of the society, which according to some scholars had came a long way before they finally settled in Liangzhu. And they were suggesting that in their long march to Liangzhu, they probably encountered a lot of difficulties. And through those sort of combating the difficulties, some heroic figures sort of emerged. And therefore these were commemorated by the later generation of the society. And this probably was also one of the ways, you know, for the rise of these elite groups. And also because of that kind of activities, jade production, and also using jade as a material medium to sort of convey these kind of almost religious-like ancestral belief, you know, become very important and also spread out, become acknowledged by the neighboring communities. Therefore, Liangzhu elites were able to summon or pull together huge amount of resources, you know, to build their huge hydraulic systems, you know, huge monuments, you know, huge massive, you know, earthen walls, etc. So it's almost like you say that we're really kind of struck out. So these elites might have almost tried to claim descendancy from these semi-mythical figures, like, you know, like Roman, elite Romans tried to claim descent from their, like, semi-mythical figures who lived hundreds of years ago. It's the it's same potentially here as well, and that is kind of a visual representation of it. I think so. I think there's definitely a lot of sort of similarities in terms of this kind of approach. Obviously, because Liangzhu is much earlier than those examples you just mentioned, we couldn't say mm. with certainty, but obviously this arguably is a very important way, you know, for the Liangzhu elite to, you know, 
unified in you know, the entire area because not only in the Liangzhou center, but across the region, we can see that pretty much everybody was, you know, using these kind of, or was sort of having some sort of, you know, very similar design of sort of similar kind of jade in the society. So this map roughly shows you different sort of clusters of size across the Liangzhou area in these sort of, sort of side cluster called, uh, Limping side clusters, for instance, which is around 30 kilometers away. There we also found, you know, some J artifacts with very similar design. Very, very, very cool. Well, let's focus on one other part of Langju where I know there's quite a lot of jade artifacts and really extraordinary parts. This cemetery, this cemetery, what is this cemetery that we have? So, so far there are about, I think, three or five uh, elite cemeteries that's been found in the Liangzhu area or in the Liangzhu city. And these are commonly believed to be belonging to elites or some even call it a royal sort of lineage of the Liangzhu city. If we want to call Liangzhu a state, then these elite cemeteries were used by these kind of royal groups. And one of the most remarkable sort of characteristics of these barriers is the jade. Huge number, huge quantity and diverse sort of shape of jade has been found from these barriers. The most important one is, is one from the Fanshan Cemetery, one that's considered to be, to be belonging to a king. And roughly speaking, there are about 500 pieces of jade has been found with one thing in, in one single tomb. And this, you know, obviously, if, if we can sort of consider jade as a sort of currency, then these, these people probably was extremely powerful in order to amass, you know, that huge amount of sort of, I would say, wealth or fortune, you know, and then barrier, you know, in his outer life. You know, this is really, really extraordinary. It's a display of power, isn't it? It really is. Yes, yes. I wouldn't say it can be tra directly translated into wealth or sort of wealth in the financial terms, but obviously the J were very important in terms of displaying power, displaying social status uh, uh, during the Liangzhu time. You've mentioned how we find examples of, of, of this, you know, in the wider area mm. around Langju. Mm. Uh, do we know where this jade was sourced from? Ah, that's a very important but probably difficult question. <laughs> we don't quite know yet. I know some teams from Zhejiang University, they are investigating where this jade source potentially could be from. And there's so far some signs that it could be actually from nearby mountains. One thing we have to bear in mind is that when we talk about jade in prehistoric China, they are different from the jade we refer to later times. In the later times, jade is the same as jade dye, whereas the jade in prehistoric China, they refer to serpentine. So there are different geological terms or minerals. And some teams from Zhejiang University, for instance, they have found some of the mines of serpentines in nearby mountains. So we don't quite know yet where these jade raw materials was coming from. As you say, they come in these various different sizes and, mm. and shapes. Mm. I've only got one last thing on the jade, then we're going to move on. But mm. the, the Langju Jade Kong. Now what, tong. Um, tong. Tong, yes. is that how you say it? So what are these artifacts? How are they shaped? So the Liangzhu people or the Liangzhu elite obviously have very clear 
idea in terms of producing their jade. They have very strict design, what a tone like you just mentioned or what a beat disc should be like. They have very clear, very strict design of tone, for instance. You know, it has to ha have a sort of curly square kind of shape, uh, outer sort of outer shape, and then roundy sort of middle, uh, horror sort of middle. And sometimes the tone can be also divided into different segments. And then between the segments, you, you, you will see the carved symbols of the, of the sacred humans we just mentioned. And obviously these J were used to display. Uh, you can see that because the, the, the symbol will be carved in this corner. Right. So the J will be on display. Yep. And the viewers will be able to see you know, the symbols. Yes, frontal um, design. Yeah. Yeah, so this J were, a lot of them actually was used by these elites when they were alive. And of course, once they, once they, you know, after their death, they, they were also buried together in their, into their tombs. And then you also have other type of jade, which they were probably use them as kind of, as kind of ornaments or kind of fittings for their clothes. So jade obviously was the most important artifacts in the Liangzhu elite society. And then later you can see that the jade spread out across China. And they were used in different times by different cultures. And because of Liangzhu, people have such a complicated design and very strict sort of design in terms of what a tone should be like. You can see that the later period of people from other regions, they were trying to imitate the Liangzhu tone uh -huh. artifact, but they didn't quite get it. They will either get the design wrong or they will get the symbol wrong. Or they, they, they use it in a different context, yeah. But once again, it's such an important and you know, there's a long-reaching connection yes. that you have in that yes. late Neolithic period. I mean, we've got to keep moving on. I want to ask briefly about these other artifacts that were discovered. I mean, you mentioned B-discs or big discs. Yeah. So what are these going and how do they sit alongside these other types of artifacts that have been discovered? So B-discs appear if we... If we say that Liangzhu, the Liangzhu people have an inventory of jade, Tong and other artifacts obviously appear much earlier. And obviously, they were, because you know, this is really the center of the elite life you know, for a thousand years, new forms keep coming, you know, keep coming out. B-discs appear slightly later. And there's also theory or scholarly opinion that B-discs emerged later and was very quickly being used to display wealth. So tone might be a very important object in the ritual kind of ceremonies, whereas B-discs may be used to simplify or simplify a display, you know, wealth. Because in some tombs, we can see dozens of B-discs were, were used and displayed in these in sort of funeral contest. And how they um, look? They are just small, round, almost disc, well, disc no, shapes some kind of things. Big discs. Some of them are in the British Museum. They ah. are actually massive. They are really huge in size. And, and yet they don't have, or some of them do, but a lot of them don't have these extremely meticulously carved motifs. Therefore, the, you can see that the labor expenditure in that is not that huge as carving the tone. Yet you do need a huge amount of raw materials and and they were also used in abundance and because of these reasons some scholars consider that 
the B discs may be one of the important signs of wealth in the Yangzhu society. And they are also made out of jade, are they? Yes. Right. And so do we therefore have any artifacts that relate to the everyday people of Langzhu? Do we have ceramics or any, anything like that? Oh, the Liangzhu people, they were also extremely sophisticated porters, for instance. They produced extremely beautiful, really shining black pottery. And some of them also have very sim- similar carvings that we, we can see from the jade. And they, were all, they also produce a huge amount of lacquer, Lacquerware. Yes. So this presumably was used in daily life for eating, for drinking, but also for ritual ceremonies, for displaying food, offering food to the to the ancestors, etc. There's a huge inventory of artifacts that's been found in the Liangzhu city, and because of because this is also a waterlogged kind of environment, a lot of these organic materials ah. get very well preserved. So therefore, we are very fortunate to see incredibly preserved kind of lacquer wares, bamboo, sort of sleeping mat, for instance, um, huge varieties of daily life artifacts that's been found from the Liangzhu excavation as well. So you've got late Neolithic beds in the past of these bamboo, well, potentially hammock kind of things that they had, these people were, were Yes, sleeping in. I couldn't find that picture, but we do have very beautifully sort of interwoven kind of bamboo artifacts, presumably used as a mat, as a mat at least, in domestic context. I wouldn't say it's a bed, mm, but at least okay. it's a resting area. Not a bed, not a hammock, mm, but as you say, yeah. a resting area yeah. and a potential yeah. cover. Last question, therefore, all of this incredible archaeology, from the dams, to the walls, to the elite jade, to these everyday artifacts preserved because of the waterlogged conditions, and the burning. What has all the archaeology therefore revealed about Langju so far? What has it suggested about this site's importance and the people who lived here in the third millennium BC? So we can look at this from different perspectives and obviously one thing as I just mentioned is that the date of the Liangzhu urban operation is really much earlier than previously thought and also because it's in the lower Yangtze River it's out of the conventional idea where the Chinese civilization originated from. So it provides us an extraordinary material evidence to see that in other parts of the China, not the central plains, you know, you also have this highly developed, you know, early state-like entity emerge from a very early time. And they obviously have incredibly sophisticated engineering ability, highly organized society, and most importantly, highly developed rice-based agriculture economy. And these all, all these support, you know, the, 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 the huge undertaking of the earthen monuments of the, of the hydraulic systems and define the Liangzhu civilization. And uh, another thing I want to mention is that Liangzhu civilization is also about water. You know, they were obviously very, they also have obviously had very sophisticated knowledge about how to control the water, and they also had a means to, you know, tame or confine the water, because without that, you know, they couldn't have survived, let alone sort of flourished in this kind of waterlogged, you know, wetland and very low-lying environment. And 
Yeah, I think that's probably those are probably very important sort of characteristics about Liangzhu civilization, and they they were obviously able to not have direct control, but establish a very far-reaching kind of connections with their neighbors. Is we are not just talking about the Liangzhu city, but we are talking about almost a thousand sites, you know, in this in this area. And this this huge number of sites they share some similarities, such as the kind of religious belief I mentioned early on. They were all supported by rice agriculture. They all have very similar architecture technology, such as building the mounds. So we are talking about a regional phenomenon, not just one single site from the Liangzhu city. It is absolutely extraordinary, Jay, and it must be such a privilege to be able to work on this archaeology. And as you say, this is like breaking down barriers. This is new evidence that is suggesting, as you've highlighted there, that this old idea of the Yellow River as this traditional centre of Chinese civilization, a cradle almost, it not, may not necessarily be there. You also have this incredibly sophisticated, flourishing culture also existing along the Yangtze River, in the late Neolithic period, he said some 5,000 years ago. It must be fascinating to study that and to learn more about it. Yes, and then I think one of the, the, the fascinating thing about recent archaeological development in China is that you do have, I, can, I think now we can almost say that you have multiple centers of civilizations in China. Mm. You, have the Liang, you, have the, you have the Yangtze, Lower Yangtze River, we also have a massive, you know, almost equivalent Yangzhu in the middle Yangtze River. And then up in the upper Yangtze River in nowadays Chengdu, you also have, you know, highly developed you know, civilization. They are all more or less, you know, about dates to the Neolithic period I mentioned. So we can see multiple centers of these highly developed early civilizations across China. And I think together, they were interacting, they were communicating, and together they define, you know, what we call Chinese civilization. Well, UJ, this has been absolutely fascinating, and it just goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Yi Zhuang talking all things Liang Zhu. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. And as mentioned in the intro, it's about time we return to China and its archaeology. And don't you worry, we'll be doing more topics on that in the near future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying The Ancients and you want to help us out as we enjoy this incredible growth spurt over the last few months, it has been absolutely brilliant. If you want to help us out, well, you know what you can do. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps us as we continue to grow the podcast, to take it to even greater heights, and to continue our infinite mission to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.